0: welcome back this is the seventh episode of air an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode joining me today to talk about science nature and sound is uk producer max cooper Born and raised on the north coast of Ireland, Max has been interested in patterns, nature and genetics since he was a kid, eventually earning his PhD in computational biology. He decided to pursue a career in music in 2010, letting his love of production and his interest in science intertwine through live AB shows like 2015's Emergence and this year's Light Field installation, Ether. At the time of this interview, Max was readying a performance for Berlin's new 4D sound venue Monome where this episode was also recorded. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure. What was the first thing that you remember learning about biology or science in general that really amazed you, maybe when you were a kid or when you were growing up?
1: I think when I was pretty young, I remember reading some, you know, books on, like, relativity and sort of being pretty uh, confused and interested at the same time. Um, so I was probably, yeah, I was probably, like, I don't know, 13 or something when I started reading these, like, science books and finding all this mad stuff that I, you know, I couldn't fully comprehend, but I could see that there was something really interesting going on there. Mm-hmm. Um and then, and then biology. Yeah, I, I mean, I was always equally interested in in all the different sciences. But I think I had a good, uh, had a very good biology teacher, and it makes a big difference. That's probably how I went into biological science eventually.
0: And so, this feeling of confusion or not really comprehending something—is that something that draws you to different subjects? Maybe not just where science is concerned, but perhaps in music as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I've definitely. I always... I need to learn, you know. I, I think I get... I get down if I don't keep learning. You know, I always want to keep pushing myself and keep trying new things, and... Um, yeah, I think that that just led me towards sciences because I need structure in my learning as well. I'm not so good at languages, you know, where we... I mean, obviously, if you learn a lot of languages, then you start to see... get all the structures, but science, I, I, I like to learn through you know, visuals and through, you know, visualised structures and, and, you know, little machines, things that I can imagine. I mean, that's why I'm here doing this um, 4D sound performance is because it's, you know, you turn music into a physical structure. So you're working with music and and imagining each piece as a, you know, this machine that's out there with moving parts and, you know, or maybe it's not a machine, maybe it's a waterfall or whatever, but a piece of music becomes a physical entity out there in the space. Mm. And that's the way I like to think about, my music and I, and that's very right linked to my you know my background in science. is always I was good at imagining little machines running you know rolling around and interacting and doing all their little bits. And I could store that information, but I was never so good at languages because storing words. I'm terrible with names. I'm terrible <laughs> with dates. I can't remember half the time. I can't remember how old I am. You know. <laughs> So I'm just, yeah, it's just the way the way my the way my mind works, I suppose.
0: But so when you were a kid, you mentioned that you had kind of a big imagination. Um, in what ways do you think that science expressed itself in your life? Like, were you building things or, I don't know, creating things or what was it like for
1: um, you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when I was really young, I loved my Lego and stuff, you know, building, building stuff like that. So, yeah, for sure. Um, but... Not really, I'm not... I was never good at experimental science. Actually, I was really bad at it. You know, with experimental science where you're you know, in a lab and you've got to grow some cells and feed them at the right time and I was just... They, my, my cells would die or they'd mutate in some <laughs> horrible thing. My plants would just be... Uh, it just... It was a disaster. I'm not very good at um, being that structured in my... You know, how I organise my life. You know, like, I'm not very good... I don't like following recipes. I hate, like, cooking with recipes. It mm-hmm. really pisses me off. i like organization yeah (laughs) i don't like having organization forced upon me i want to be free to sort of do what i want when i feel like almost and and that's not that doesn't lend itself well to experimental science you have to be really precise and Mm -hmm. accurate and that's not me so i was always the the bit that interested me was was always the um theoretical side you know the ideas and it was just you know the imagining what these things meant and and uh, that was the thing that interested me more so than the the um reality of doing experiments so that's why i mean i the science work i did was all um theoretical my phd was all just computational biology so you know making computer simulations of biological systems and messing around with abstract systems you know that were imaginary really there was no real thing Mm. nothing real going on and actually all the results could be you know perhaps it was all meaningless, but the idea is that you, you build a model or something and then you can simulate that model, especially when it, with biology, things are very complex, so you need computers to simulate them and also simulate how things can change over millions or billions of years. So you'd simulate these complex systems and then make predictions, and then you give the, you know, publish the predictions and then hopefully hope that some people who do real experiments would actually you know confirm the predictions or refute them. So that's how you get that interaction between the theoretical side and the more practical side of science.
0: I mean, it's interesting I was going to ask you I was reading that you used to read a lot of science books as a kid. I think you mentioned this already um, but for me as an avid reader, I think the goal of reading was and still remains for me a kind of escapism from the real world and a step into fantasy if you will
1: yeah um, but that's that's exactly what yeah I was, was. going to say it yeah. didn't
0: seem like it doesn't really seem like theoretical or logical material would be so imaginative
1: yeah, that's the great thing about about science and physics and you know, the, the great thing about it is that when you do read into it, you realise that the, the reality, if you want to call it that, uh, the reality as defined by, you know, the scientific method, is as spectacular and as unusual and weird and, you know, fantastic as any sort of fiction. So re- that was the thing that amazed me when I was a kid, you know, reading these things and thinking, is this for real or, you know, is this a joke? And it's like, you know, things, just simple things like, you know, like that time not being consistent... You know, time. If if you move faster, um, your experience of time relative to other people changes. So you can literally time travel if you go fast enough, and you can stretch. You can stretch time. You know, which is a weird. I mean, that's something. Time travel is something out of you know fiction. It's actually totally you know within science. You know, time travel happens all the time. Um, So there's straight away, it you know real science delves into these very unusual realms. So it is. It was escapism. And the great thing about it is, it's escapism, but it's also productive. So you know, if you, the more you learn, Best you can actually worlds. yeah, you can actually you know put it to use in some sense. And to be honest, music is very much the same for me. Mm. It's total escapism. I just delve into these abstract worlds, and then I'd get totally lost. I end up you know staying up all night and forgetting to you know go to bed, forgetting to eat, and just like <laughs> stuck in my studio for you know until the sun's coming up, and then and then I'm like oh crap, I should have should have gone to sleep should i (laughs) but yeah it's totally immersive so i think yeah escapism is definitely one of my favorite things and definitely it relates again to this 4d system we're in now and a lot of my work is to do with immersion you know i spend a lot of time doing psychoacoustic effects which are effects for stereo listening which give you the experience that pieces of sound are moving around you or behind you and it gives the it, it turns the whole piece of music into a you know, a three-dimensional field of sorts. And that's just about trying to make it more immersive and mm-hmm. trying to take the listener a, a bit more outside of the everyday reality.
0: So would you say that you're more of a logical person or more of a sensitive, passionate, emotional type of person?
1: It's really hard to say. It's really hard to, like, um, say which one is more dominant, you know, because they're both, um, they're both there in everything I do, really. You know, I, my music is very emotionally driven um even though i have to spend a lot of time you know applying sort of logical you know, reasoning in order to do things well, the way i want to do but essentially i'm always expressing some sort of feeling so i don't know i couldn't really say which one was more more important than the other to be honest
0: which one do you think has more bearing on your music i mean logically i would say logic i guess but as you just said emotion yeah, comes no, into it I, as well, The
1: way i, I write mean? music's always been Um, Very based around chord structures, uh, which for me are the sort of essence of where emotion lies in in music. Um, Obviously in melodies as well, but melodies are generally built around the chord structures. So the way I work is usually, you know, applying a feeling first um, in the context of a particular concept that I'm working with so it's, yeah, but both come into play. It's it's hard. To, it's really hard to separate it out. Uh, and actually, a lot of the time, I don't really. It's it's a very intuitive process. Um, so I don't really try and delve into too much into analyzing what I'm doing. The other thing is, I don't have like, I'm not coming from a, a music background. I'm not like a you know trained musician of any sort. So the way I've learnt to write music has always been, I've never had any training. So it's always been sort of intuitively driven I, I know I what I know what I want to express or what feeling I want to express and then I'm just using trial and error and experimenting with techniques to try and figure out how I can express that feeling or you know that idea um, so actually if if I was forced on this I'd have to say that probably emotion is more important uh, or is more fundamental to my process just because with music and especially just because that's I've always had a strong connection to music and I've owned all I've ever used is that, and you know, computers really. I suppose to, to enable me to express myself. I'm, I'm lucky that we're living in an era when you can express yourself emotionally just with you know with computers, um, because I can't play any instrument.
0: I was reading that you appreciate the similarities between science and music in terms of patterns. Can you talk a bit about that? What what patterns in music move you? What patterns in science move you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's just. I often get asked, you know, is there any link between the mm-hmm. two? And I think the most basic link between, you know, sciences and and um, music is that they both are about patterns. So science is patterns in nature, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, patterns in time, you know, the, the sun goes up in the morning, it goes down at night time mm-hmm. and there's seasons and you know there's whatever there's you know there's repeating things which are patterns and and music music is based on repeating things as well except the repeating things are tones in the sense of very really fast repeating things they'll form particular tones which we which then build melodies and chords or if they're more slowly repeating things we might hear them as you know percussion it might be drum patterns or slower repeating things could be bigger you know dynamical dynamic changes in pieces of music things like that but it's all about you know repetition and and um symmetry which is you know the fact that one thing changes which is maybe time moves but then something else stays the same you know there's something that comes back again um and science is exactly the same thing as applied to the world around us rather than as applied to sound entering our ears um so there's that really basic link um and I've totally sidetracked from the question (laughs) that's okay yeah
0: so is this this world around you is that maybe the most interesting thing about science for you like, how it applies to the actual world around you, if that makes sense I think it
1: yeah, it's curiosity, you know it's wanting to know what what it is that's out there and what it is where why you know what it is we're living in, um, science sheds some light on that, doesn't have all the answers, of course, because it's you know' it's everything in science is concerned with the objective world, you know it's what you can measure and agree on with someone else, it can't tell you anything about experience or. Meaning, Um, but learning it can certainly tell us a lot of things about the objective world, Uh, and that lends itself to curiosity about what's going on here. You know, Um, which is, I suppose, one of the most fundamental questions that anyone can ask.
0: You once said that there's a lot of misconceptions about how science influences your music. What did you mean by that? What misconceptions were you talking about? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I mean, yeah, because I really like particularly with the visuals i do a lot of visual shows mm-hmm. and visuals lend themselves really well to putting scientific data and you know like i've been doing some collaborations with you know some scientists at the babraham institute for example where we got you know used their experiments predicting dna structure and we used the all the data from their experiments to create these really beautiful um music videos and a vr experience with andy lomas um so it works great in terms of visual things because you know, we're we're so used to seeing different types of data, different structures visually that we you, you can throw a lot of different experimental data in there and it can come out quite beautiful um, because a lot of the time nature is beautiful inherently anyway, so it's a good source. Um, but with music, um, it's much more difficult. You know what we define as a piece of music is much more rigid uh, than what we. Than all of our sort of what we're used to visually, what what we could say is beautiful visually. For example, it's quite difficult putting data into music. Um, I do some yeah, I've done some experiments with that. But generally, the way I do things is using the science ideas for music videos, and then scoring the music to the, to fit the fit the concept. You know, And sometimes I link the two together for you know. In the emergence project, there was an emergent piece of music where I used these random raindrops to, like, you know, enforce them towards grid positions to get, create this emergent rhythm, which I could then build the track around, things like that. So there are, the science idea has become a creative tool, but the misunderstanding is that I somehow use, I'm just i'm a scientist i'm in a lab and i've got my machine and you know my big tune button and there's this button on my machine you know i I press the button and this big tune comes out it's you know i think that's the misconception that's that was i mean i've spent a lot of time explaining this over the years so it's not so much it's not so much something that gets totally misrepresented anymore but certainly um, earlier on that was that was the misunderstanding um so there's a limit to there's basically a limit to how much how, how much the two things can be linked. Um, certainly, it's a rich source creatively for me at the moment.
0: Can you talk a bit more about the visuals that you use in your shows? How do you how do those come about? How do you how does the creative process work for those? Um,
1: so generally, I'll have the concepts that I you know I'll, that I want to I want to work with a particular you know idea. Um, for example, the new EP um, World Passing By, we wanted to work with the idea of time. I was wondering about different ways that time could function, I suppose, physically, and then how we could represent that visually. And then, from those ideas, I'll you know brief. I'll find a visual artist that I that I think could do a good job, and I'll brief them about the ideas, and we'll chat and go back and forth. And then I'll, um, you know, send them some musical ideas for what I think could work with with particular visual stories. And sometimes I'll then you know get the visuals back, and then change you know change the music, and there's a, there's a sort of conversation back and forth there with the visual artist. But that's the general way I work with these, you know, with these sort of science-related concept ideas. You know, the concept comes first and then some music usually not finished and then, you know, finding a visual artist that suits and then the conversation with them and then everything sort of changing and growing uh, together. Um, but sometimes there's been occasions as well where I've briefed, you know, I've had the visual idea first and briefed the visual artist and they've actually sent me something which I've then scored to. Some of the Certainly some of the Emergence project worked like that. But the main thing is that there's some sort of finding idea to start off with um, that both the visual and the music can reference.
0: It sounds very collaborative.
1: It is, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm not... Sometimes it shows people go, oh, how did you make your visuals? And I'm like, man, no way, I didn't make the visuals. Like, I, I control the visuals live at show. I have all the stock content and I get, I can sort of glitch them up and mess around with them and do all sorts of things with them. But, you know, the whole skill of, of creating, you know... Film and and, you know, amazing visual effects and and all. There's all sorts of programming things going on. There's Andy Lomas, for example, builds his generative models of cell growth, which are really beautiful. So I I really enjoy working with people who have the visual skills that, uh, but also sharing common interests with me. Is that generally
0: easy to find people that
1: have the same interests? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people out there, loads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. There's a whole community of people. You know um and i don't know most of them either i just know that there are cuz there's amazing work going on um and they have you know there's there's conferences and things and all sorts of there is definitely a community of um i guess people who are working in the visual arts but very much on that sort of on the with the interface with the sciences and you know with mathematics and sciences interfacing with the arts it's something that's more and more uh i'm seeing you know a lot is different you know even in universities people are doing research which is interfacing arts and sciences or people who are doing you know undergrad degrees which are interfacing these things There seems to be a lot of it going on um is that certain, recent like yeah
0: when you, when you started doing all this in 2013 yeah or 14, it's,
1: it maybe. seems to me to definitely be within the last you know five years or so that i've started to see a lot of this popping up um and you know there's probably the same reason the whole you know i'm i'm sort of doing the same thing from a different angle and there's probably a reason why so you know this is happening it's you know it's i suppose computational technology and you know new types of you know programming approaches and yeah new software is enabling that sort of interface um to be happening more and more but it's the one thing that really interested me was seeing people that i met someone recently who was at a university doing a postdoc. And they, their funding was... Um, they were in a physics lab, but they were also an artist. And, and their funding was basically researching how they could apply you know, the arts to you know, so physics research. Mm-hmm. So it was really, yeah, it's pretty awesome that people are doing that stuff. Yeah.
0: You've said previously that you are aiming to try and bring some of the richness of the real world into what can be the painfully formulaic and lifeless sound of purely computational music. That's a quote from you. <laughs> <laughs> can you uh, elaborate on that process of kind of bringing this richness into your sound?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, there's lots of ways of doing it. I mean, uh, and people, you know, I guess there's a reason why everyone's obsessed with analogue things, you know, because, that, I mean, that's one route for bringing some real-world chaos into, you know, computational music, um, and I'm always in search of, it's funny, you know, 20 years ago, everyone was in search of fidelity. You know, how do you make things l- sound less messy? You know, they want to, oh, they sound, I can hear all that white noise and distortion. And now it's, everyone wants it. They're like, no, they're, they want all the old gear <laughs> yeah. for all of the reasons that people didn't like it in the past. It's funny. Um, so, yeah, obviously, yeah, I use a lot of that sort of, you know, those sort of approaches with um, using you know, analog noise in various forms and, you know, tape delays and stuff but then i also do a lot of field recordings so i'll i'll you know have my little binaural mics and i'll go out when i'm traveling touring touring, and record random sounds and
0: so the actual then, real world yeah also.
1: yeah yeah exactly trying to get textures and sounds from the real world and then the other thing i try and do is i use a lot of I use a lot of randomization and um, well pseudo randomization basically um in, in Ableton, uh, using Max for Live devices, I, I spend a lot of time building these really chaotic systems. So that you know, if, if I press play, you know, in my studio, it would sound like an absolute mess. But what I'm doing is I'm just trying to make something with lots of complex interactions and lots of randomization and it's sort of, and it's just trying to get that balance between constraining it just enough to almost sound musical, and uh, but giving it enough space to explore so it sound pretty messy and then I you know I spend a lot of time recording these things and p- pulling bits out of them and then reprocessing and yeah just trying to yeah trying to get some of that richness that you get from from the real world and also another another thing which I try and do a lot of the time is um apply a scale-free structure so I'm, I'm you know I have these big chord structures and big drums and you know the things you'll you'll hear in a club if you play the, the music but then if you listen on headphones You'll also hear like, oh, there's lots of detail going on between, you know, between the drums, and there's all layers, extra layers of, you know, um, rhythms and and melodies that are you're too subtle really to come across on big systems. And then if you listen on really high-end speakers or really good headphones, like some open open-back headphones, then there'll be a whole extra world of, you know, psychoacoustic effects and you know, binaural effects, and these you know things will be popping up behind you and are moving around you, and there's a whole other layer of you know further detail, and it's that. You know, I, I want to make my music so that however closely you listen, you'll find new stuff in there. There's almost things hiding in there all the time. And that's very much the structure of, you know, the real world. You know, there's macro structures and then there's structures within those and within those and within those. You know, there's this scale-free um, structure to the world around us. Um, however, you keep zooming in, you'll keep finding more patterns and more structures. And a lot of the time, they'll be the same patterns that you find at the bigger scales, you know. That's another general, a general love of nature perhaps has led me towards wanting to structure my music like that. I don't know. It's really hard to say where these com- things come from but certainly um, my love of nature and natural structures was seeded probably before music. When I, I mean, I grew up in Ireland in Northern Ireland and it's, you know, I was ten minutes away from the city but also ten minutes on my bike I'd always, you know, cycle off into the hills and it was all just beautiful coastline and sea interacting and, and loads of hills and just really beautiful, you know. Ireland's a really beautiful place and quite unspoilt. A lot of it, um, so I really miss that. Actually, I live in London now. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I do miss, I, I do miss that. Um, but that was, yeah, that was definitely seeded quite early, and I guess m- music was seeded early as well. But um, it, I think it only became an obsession later.
0: It seems very analytical, I guess, the way that you described kind of hearing, hearing music. Are you that? analytical when you listen to an album at home for example.
1: yeah it's annoying actually <laughs> um I struggle to listen to a lot of music um because I constantly think it just t- you know triggers off all these things in my mind about oh they probably use this compressor there or they you know they're using that technique and they're using oh this that plug-in oh, I recognize that plug-in or that synth mm-hmm. oh it's this thing <laughs> and they're doing this and you know it's this I'm constantly yeah so actually, when I'm ho- at home, I end up listening to I used to end up listening to like bluegrass or like something <laughs> like so, you know totally I to- so far away from my realm of music that that it, it doesn't interfere. That I can actually just experience it as I should, which is a shame, you know. But the flip side is that sometimes I get a lot of enjoyment listening to someone like Rob Clouth. Um, I I'll just I get a lot of enjoyment or, or rival consoles, you know. Rob Clouth, I will get a lot of enjoyment just because I'm totally baffled at what you know. It just blows my mind, you know, I don't know what how he's done what he's done, you know. And and then for rival consoles, for example, I just love his his synth work, you know. It's just so beautiful. Um, so I, I can, I guess, I'll spend my time appreciating things on in a in a different way, I suppose. But a lot of the time, it's frustrating because I'll just categorize, you know, if I listen to something and I categorize what's going on too quickly, then it can sort of detract from really just experiencing it properly. Really, mm-hmm. which is which is annoying.
0: So going back to Emergence, which you mentioned earlier, can you maybe just describe a bit what that show is like for listeners who might not be familiar with it?
1: So, yeah, it's it's a visual show. Um, I love visuals and, you know, it's a way of bringing all the ideas, the science ideas and my sort of personal visual aesthetic into a context of a live show. Um, and the show tells a story, so there's a there's a story of emergence, which is you know a scientific idea, but uh, sort of without a little bit outside the realms of normal dry science it's it's almost emergence. it sort of says where science breaks down a little bit. you know it's this science is always based on reductionism, you know you keep making smaller and breaking things down into smaller and smaller units, and then you are finding it to these really simple small units and, and then you you know explain how they those work and break them down in an equation or something, and then you can then try and explain the big things that happen from these small units. but actually emergence is where. These small interacting units can create unexpected, you know, macro-scale outcomes. Like us, for example, you know, you might be able to write some equations that describe how, you know, the, the quarks and you know these atoms are bouncing around and what they're doing. But that doesn't really tell you anything about what it's like to be a person, mm-hmm. you know, and drink a cup of tea or whatever. <laughs> you know, so emergence happens. You know that when when complex systems uh, have many, you know, interacting parts with feedbacks and these things, then you get macro properties which can't really be broken down to, the, to, the, to their building blocks. So that's emergent. So it's, it's a nice idea which I took um, and used to you know, with a sort of timeline throughout the universe, you know, from sort of pre-Big Bang to, like, you know, star formation and planets and early life and evolution and, you know, cell forms and all these things, and then humans arrive and, and then the capitalist machine and all these sorts of things. So it, it, it's this sort of universe timeline narrative where every chapter looks at the systems at play and how they're interacting and what sort of emergent properties are happening. And then there's an the overall story of emergence, which is, you know, the start is, you know, looking at natural laws and how those natural laws eventually, you know, an hour and a half or two hours later turn into, you know, the, you know, the man stuck in the capitalist machine uh, and then and the future. So it was just a, a way of bringing all these ideas together, which were fun ideas and would lend themselves to beautiful visuals uh, in the context of a live show um and it's something which uh you don't there's all these ideas but really you don't have to care about any of that stuff <laughs> you know you can, you, it's it's still a music show it's still like a a club show I mean sometimes I play club club shows sometimes it's sit down things but you know if, if it's in a club and it's a techno club then there will be an element of dance music you know um so, a lot of people will turn up and just, you know, for the music and enjoy that, and they might enjoy the visuals, and you don't have to care about the ideas. Whereas some people will be interested in the ideas and will be, you know, watching the videos, the visuals more. Uh, and I, also, I spend a lot of time or a lot of gigs doing like immersive versions where I'm projecting onto multiple surfaces or um, with multiple um, screens and things like that. That's one of the new things I've been doing. So it's a visual show with music and it's it's awesome.
0: <laughs> do yeah. you think that the visuals and the music in a show like Emergence are necessary for the other part of it to make sense? Like, do they need each other in order to make one complete show?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, I'd like to think that the music and the visuals combined is more powerful than the the sum of the individual parts. You know, it's more than the sum of its parts. Like, the music on its own is and then the the visuals on their own are okay. but when you bring them together, they, like, it makes something special. That's that's the idea, and I... Yeah, I believe that's true. I mean, I haven't done a test, you know. Maybe I'd have to, like, get some people to listen to the music on its own and then rate it and get them to listen to the (laughs) visuals on their own and rate it, and then... I don't know how you would do that. But, yeah, um, it should be. They're designed to work together so I hope that they do
0: maybe we can talk a bit about the show uh here in this space at Monom Monom
1: uh, yep. yeah Monom, Monom, Monom. Yeah.
0: um
1: it's a good name I like it
0: so can you explain a bit about 4D sound uh my take on it which is maybe not correct but from what I understand it's kind of similar to like being in a jungle for example you know and there's yeah. like kind of sounds yeah, that's everywhere a, yeah
1: yeah that's a nice way of looking at it um there can be sounds coming yeah, from underneath the floor and around you and things flying past your head and all that exactly is like being in a some sort of abstract jungle um the other way i would usually describe the system um isn't in, in terms of how you can interact with it because there's lots of different surround sound systems right you know you can get your home cinema with the music, with the sound it can come from different sides of the room or you can get your dolby atmos which is another project i've been doing a Actually, I've done a Dolby Atmos version of the Emergence album, like mm-hmm. the whole thing with all the visuals and the surround sound for home cinemas, which we'll release soon on like a DVD and Blu-ray and stuff. But that's a that's a really cool, you know, home cinema system, which not only has direction, but also has height. So the sounds can come from anywhere around you, but can also come from high up on the roof or down low. So the thing that the 4D system has in addition to all of that is that, um, you can actually walk through the sounds so that the, the system really comes to life when you explore it. So you can have a certain sound coming from a particular position in the room and you can walk through that sound to the other side and there's another sound be- behind it. Um, and that's something you can't do with any other systems that I know of. Um, and the reason that you can do it with this is because we've got this grid of 16, you know, columns uh, and then speakers with m- in multiple heights within the columns and underneath the floor so the sounds can come within the space, not just from the edges. So, yeah, I work with a 3D model of the space, and every piece of music as a physical entity. I have to decide for every sound in every track, you know, what size it is and where it is in the room and how it moves and how it interacts with all the other sounds, and, you know, each piece needs to have an overall physical structure. So it takes a long time pr- to prepare, but then you get these amazing environments built there. Audio sculptures is another way of... I mean, I did a whole set of thing, audio sculptures which were not musical, but they were just structures built out of sound or physical structures so it, it has that that feeling about it you can each piece of music it's a physical thing out there and you can walk around inside it yeah
0: and so is there visuals that accompany this or is it just no
1: the sound? no it's just the sound so i mean is um, that different
0: for you like is that more pressure on you sound wise
1: yeah i mean it's the, the thing is because we've got this grid of speakers it blocks your field of vision so you you wouldn't it wouldn't be that easy to have a you know, see a screen that clearly. The way to do it really would be to map so that if you had a particular sound coming from a particular part in the room or under the floor that the visual, corresponding visual, came from there as well. But that would be really hard to set up. (laughs) Maybe they'll do that. You know, that that would be like in a couple of years' time, you know, maybe I could think about a project like that would be pretty amazing to combine the two. But it would really need screens probably need to be in a dome so um i do some i've done a a project recently at Mutech in canada yeah the the dome project exactly at sat (laughs) uh, in montreal uh, and that's what you would need you would if you had a dome then you get full 360 uh, visual you'd still have the problem of if you have a sound coming from the middle of the space how would you represent that visually because there is no screen there you know you can't have a screen there um yeah it'd be amazing
0: Mm. i mean i was here for the opening and i quite liked that you couldn't really like, you didn't really have anywhere to look. Like, you could yeah. look at the DJ booth, but there wasn't... Yeah, there's like, There was a lot on. of fog going on. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Fog is I good, actually. That. I hope
1: we have a lot of fog. That would be cool. Yeah, yeah, fog's good. <laughs> yeah, it's really just, like, to encourage people to, yeah, use their ears, I suppose. And, and mm. there's so much... Have you ever done the binaural hairdresser? You know, no. on YouTube, <laughs> there's, like, this thing called the binaural hairdresser. And you, like, put it... It's pretty fun, like... You, you if you've got some friends over or something, having a few drinks, like you you put your friend make them sit down in a chair like this and like um, need some decent headphones and you put the headphones on them and you tell them that they have the promise not to open their eyes. What the experience is that, you know, there's this binaural recording of someone getting their hair cut and all the all the sort of drama happens, I won't tell you I won't ruin the story. But the experience is that when you have headphones on you really feel like your hair is being cut so people get you know, pretty freaked out and then <laughs> they add some extra freaky stuff obviously for fun um but the point is that people don't realize how much of our the environment that we experience is defined by our hearing you know we're quite like a visually dominated culture you know visual, visuals are so important a lot of the time and we especially assessing the, our, the spaces around us we seem to use we rely on our sight quite heavily but actually a lot of the you know our experience of our space around us is going on via the hearing and without us being aware of it even you know, and the, the binaural hairdresser and you know just binaural music in general and use of this, the techniques that I use a lot in my music are ways of um, demonstrating you know how important that is. Um, so the, bina- the binaural hairdresser is, is a good way of doing that. For you know, at home, you can just stick it on YouTube and put the headphones on and give it a go with your eyes closed. Um, but the system. I suppose is the same ethos, just to encourage people to sit back and experience what, you know, what technology and what um, immersive audio can be.
0: Can you talk a bit more about the importance of immersion as you were talking about... You you mentioned it a bit earlier. So how does that come into play in live performance? What does it add to the performance, kind of being immersed in sound?
1: It just makes it more powerful, you know? It's maybe... I get to sort of drive home my message more intensely you know it's like you can't ignore this thing it's a bit like I much prefer playing a gig if there's only one room because you know I've got a captive audience right <laughs> Trapped it's home. like it's really <laughs> annoying if you're playing at a festival or something and you're know, like I don't know like Richie Horton comes on yeah. next, <laughs> in the stage next door and like everyone like half the people go and you're like right. oh no am I playing really badly you know uh, and it, it's the same thing maybe you know it's just the immersion just makes it harder to ignore what I'm trying to what I'm trying to tell you the story I'm trying to tell and what I'm you know the messages I'm trying to convey um, which hopefully makes it a more powerful experience which hopefully makes it a more memorable experience and a better experience. Do
0: you think it also has to do with the kind of richness that you were talking about earlier with field recordings and things like that? Is that a similar kind of immersion? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I spend a lot of time with my binaural mics, which are my little mics that sit inside my ears. And then I record sounds, you know, going on in the outside world and it captures how the sounds interact with, you know, my ears and my head those those signals get captured into the recording so when you listen back your brain hears the same signal like oh that sound's filtered in a certain way or the time difference between this sound and one ear and the other is this particular time difference which then tells your subconscious mind that that sound is above your head or behind you or moving past you and it gives a much more you know strong experience of this a real thing happening in the world mm-hmm. around you you know
0: so you've been working with 4D sound since 2013 right
1: yeah i think yeah something like that my first show probably was around there.
0: so what has it been like kind of growing with growing with this type of performance venue uh, is there I mean what are you thinking about when you're performing is it a lot is it a lot more difficult to do a performance in this kind of space yeah
1: I mean it's it's just quite a different thing like I'll be really focused on the technical stuff really just making sure everything's working and mm-hmm. tweaking bits and um, triggering things and, and doing a lot of like you know live jamming with the you know the different spatial effects and, and the I'll, but I'll be busy. I'll be super busy, just um, making sure it works and you know it is as I want it to be. Um, it's a bit different with the, you know, with the visual shows and things where I do them so often. You know, I do the shows again and again, and after, you know, the more I do them, the, the sort of more versed I get, and the more I get to experiment and have fun with it a little bit more. Whereas with this system, I don't play with it very often, so it's I have to be pretty focused. No fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, no fun, no fun allowed. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, <laughs> if it, if it's all going well, then maybe I will have fun, you know. But it's uh, definitely the focus has to has to come first, just to make sure it all it's all um, as it should be.
0: But so, how much of it is? improvisational like are you are you dictating like where every sound will go beforehand and yeah kind of
1: so i mean different people some people use this system you know and they'll just have like a controller which they can control live where the sounds go and they're sort of vibing with the space and but well, that's not really how i work you know i'm not it goes back to me not being a musician you know i i want to set up a really precisely defined complex structure for each piece of music every time and i want it to be correct i get pissed off if it's not right you know so i'm not really like a just let's just live jam and see what what happens i'm more like spending yeah it's basically staying up all night in here all week and you know obsessing about each every single sound and every single little click and noise and where it is and what it's doing and it has to be right and i want you know i'm trying to i'm trying to make it sound good from any position in the room Mm because that's one of the really difficult things about this system is you know you can make a really interesting spatial form but perhaps it sounds great in one in the middle of the room but what happens if you stand on the edge of the room does it sound crap then also my music is i I use a lot of layers i have way more layers in my music than most people i probably have more layers than i should you know i overcomplicate i i just love complexity and i keep putting more and more layers in um which means yeah i have to spend a lot of time here trying to figure out what to do with all those and, and trying to make them all work in concert but the good thing about that is that all the layers and all the detailing, because it gets spread out across the space, it actually gives gives it space to breathe as well, so you can really explore the detailing so actually the system lends itself really well to that, that approach to music, but I think given that approach um, I can't really just live jam, I mean particularly as well because I'm on the corner of the room you know, uh, and, and as I said y- y- it'll sound different from different parts of the room, so I can't play live while I'm walking around the room, right. I, have to, you know, I have to be in one position, so mm. There's many reasons, but um, it's probably more to do with me being a control freak than it is to anything else.
0: You once said that music without imperfection is sterile, so how does imperfection or kind of chaos come into play in this live performance setting? Does it? Do you think it adds to the kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, there's,
1: I, I, there's, I, I actively use a lot of chaos and imperfection in my, in my process, um, in my production process, so they've got all these glitches and weird stuff going on, and then when i'm building the spatial forms in here i'm spending a lot of the time you know i'm doing those lots of random paths and you know weird structures and chaotic sort of systems of things bouncing around and reflecting off walls and all sorts there's so there is a lot of you know chaos built in um but as i mentioned earlier it's always about constraining the chaos to operate within particular boundaries so that it's still musical within a certain parameters you know it, it's um but it's always the balance between order and chaos, you know, as as with what you know, life and you know, the natural world is, is always... You know, if you pick up a leaf, you can tell it's a leaf. You know, it's sort of symmetrical, but never precisely symmetrical. And no two leaves are the same. There's that balance between order and chaos in, in the world around us, and that's definitely something I aspire to, you know, aesthetically in, in all my work.
0: I mean, has that been a difficult process for you, finding that correct balance of...?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I go too far in one direction or the other (laughs) a lot of the time it's it's um it's not that easy to get it just right
0: do you think the imperfection somehow brings out the emotion in music i mean i guess we kind of touched on this earlier you were saying um, about analog gear
1: it certainly gives it a lot more life um for me the emotion something i mentioned as well was the emotional side for me is more contained in the Chord structures and the dynamics and the and then the, mel- the melodies on top is that, but really the chords is always something I really connect with emotionally, um, and and then of course the you know the, the the timbre you know the sound design elements really drive a lot of emotion. You know you can make something you know. Gritty and distorted intense and you know nasty sounding or you know it can, or really soft you know timbres can sound much more mellowing and so I think a lot of the emotional contents contained in those things um the sort of use of um analog grit and stuff is and randomness doesn't seem it's not an emotional tool so much for me it's more um, just makes it more interesting and more. I guess it's that aesthetic of nature, you know, that thing's never being totally precise. It just feels more rich.
0: You once said that science is all about the outside world and that the great thing about music is that it can communicate feeling. Yeah. So what feelings would you say you hope to convey with your own music or with this show in particular? Um,
1: I always, yeah, I've got a bit of a habit of trying to convey everything. Not at the same time, but I think it's one of the things which sometimes uh not everybody likes you know because someone might like one track in my set they oh, I like really, really like that bit and then the next bit of the set might be totally different and they be like I didn't like that i try to tell a story you know the, some some really relaxed beautiful ambient bits and some sort of epic you know like noise bits and some really dark aggressive you know nasty bits and you know there's a whole there's a whole range of emotions um, and my my sort of mission is to try and weave them together into a coherent story. Or maybe I'll make a point sometimes of making it not fit together, but if that's at least that's a point that mm-hmm. I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> a jarring, I sort of... You know, I, think I really enjoy, you know, getting really big contrasts. Mm. I often do pieces of music which sort of specifically do that, you know. It'll be really nice, and then all of a sudden something really wrong will happen. I want to try and elicit all sorts of emotions, we all feel all sorts of things so why you know uh, why not communicate about all these different things we feel um that's my approach
0: <laughs> has it gotten easier to find the balance between those two worlds uh, outside objective world and uh, world of experience or world of emotions
1: yeah it's a weird, i mean how they're related is a, a pretty interesting question i don't know if there is a I don't, I'm not in search of a balance between them. I'm sort of, ra- I'm sort of in search of trying to understand how the two are related more than balance them. But yeah, I certainly spend a lot of my time quite strongly in one or the other. You know, in the emotional part of making a piece of music that's driven by that the feelings, or in the sort of objective part of the process where I'm trying to you know convey a concept, or you're using technical um, you know processes to try and build something yeah it's an interesting question. I constantly jump back and forth between the two when i'm writing yeah i't i don't I, do, I think it's interesting I, they just it just happens it's really it's really uh the feeling side just happens and then uh, and the other and then the the sort of technical side doesn't just happen that's like pen yeah um but al- always underneath there there's the feeling of the you know the, this loop's playing and it has a certain feeling and I'm trying to like enhance that i'm like okay here's here's the feeling that I've got with this i'm tr- want to how do I grow this you know and then i'm applying all these um, painful technical processes to try and enhance it. And sometimes it doesn't work and I have to throw them away and sometimes it dilutes it and I have to throw them away. Um, But the feeling's always there in the background.
0: So how do you see the connection between science and music evolving over the years? Maybe not just for you personally, but in general as well.
1: Well, I mean, I think we're on the cusp of many new technologies which are going to influence music. Already, you know, computational, new computational technologies are starting to influence it. I mean, I'm totally reliant on new new software techniques and new software approaches to, to make the music I do, but it's only really the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, there's huge potential for new types of music. I can see that the two will very much continue hand in hand, and I'm hoping to be part of that process.